Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in throughout Advent, uh, preaching through the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus came. When he was ministering to the people of Israel and Judah, they were uh, at a time in their national history where they faced a lot of threats both outside of them and within their own nation. The Assyrian army, one of the most powerful armies that the world had ever seen, was right on their doorstep uh, threatening to sweep them away. And at the same time, we've seen over the course of this series, they dealt with internal difficulties. They were confused spiritually, oftentimes worshiping other gods, losing track of their true God. They were a society where the rich and powerful often oppressed the poor and believed they could get away with it. And so God sent his prophet, his messenger Micah, to both bring these people the diagnosis of what was wrong in their world and then to hold out to them the hope that they could have uh, through his grace. We've called this series, A Weary World Rejoices, because that's what we believe uh, coming from the, the old carol lyric. That's what we believe that Christmas offers us in the midst of a weary world, a world where we're worn out by the struggling that we go through, by the sins of this life, that Christmas, uh, the coming of Jesus, does bring the possibility of real joy, of real rejoicing. And so uh, this morning we turn to Micah chapter 5, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? From Micah 5, 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at, it, at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Be seated. If you were with us last week, if you remember last week when we were in Micah chapter 4, we had this beautiful picture that Micah paints of a world at peace. In a world that's where, where the whole human family is flourishing under God's reign. Remember, it has that great picture of in those days they will beat their swords into plowshares and they won't learn war anymore. It was this beautiful picture of peace, the Hebrew word shalom, just this absolute peace and well-being and flourishing. This beautiful picture of peace. And today's passage uh, gets at the question of how does that peace come in this world? How do we... How do we come to taste some of that peace? How will God bring that peace into the world? You know, I think we all have this vague idea uh, that somehow the hope for peace, Christians think it has something to do with Jesus, right? It has something to do with Christmas. Uh, but we're not quite sure how the two line up. I read this week of a tradition in Scandinavia uh, called the Christmas peace. The Christmas peace. Uh, it was instituted in the Scandinavian countries in the 13th century. Uh, after Christ, is an effort to cut down on feuding, 
right? You'd have these great, these great households that would go to war with each other. They'd have feuds. Many people would die. And so in an effort to cut down on this, one of the earls in Scandinavia, who's a Swedish uh, ruler, said, okay, on Christmas, cut it out. On Christmas, there's going to be no feuding. There's going to be no fighting. There's going to be no violence. There's going to be no crime. In fact, if you, if you do any crimes, if you commit any violence on Christmas, the punishments are going to be even more severe than normal. Right? His way of saying, look, it's always against the law, but on Christmas, we really mean it. Cut it out. Be nice to each other. And still, in some Scandinavian countries, this tradition holds, this, this Christmas peace. In Finland, on Christmas Eve, uh, in the town square of the old capital, the mayor stands and he reads this address every year, and it's broadcast on radio and on television. This is what he says. Tomorrow, God willing, is the graceful celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, and thus is declared a peaceful Christmas time to all. By advising devotion and to behave otherwise quietly and peacefully, because he who breaks this peace and violates the peace of Christmas by any illegal or improper behavior shall under aggravating circumstances be guilty and punished according to the law, in the according to what the law and the statutes prescribe for each and every offense separately. And finally, a joyous Christmas feast is wished to all the inhabitants of the city. And so you see here in Finland, this Scandinavia is one of the most post-Christian societies on earth. It's a group that's largely moved on from their Christian heritage. But still there's this idea that on Christmas we should try to be nice to each other, right? It's like how, you know, if you cuss in church, it's really bad, right? If you do something wrong in front of a church, it's supposed to be worse. If you do something wrong on Christmas, it's really bad, and we'll put you in prison longer or we'll punish you more if you do wrong on Christmas. You know, I think that story shows just how, how drawn we are as human beings to peace, how much we want to try to, to push towards it, and yet how it eludes us, just how bad we are uh, at ultimately figuring out lasting ways to live at peace with one another. In fact, we don't know how to live at peace with, other, with each other other than threatening more uh, towards one another if we fail. You know, we see, I think, if you look uh, at the world at large, uh, our failures as a people to bring in peace. Just earlier we prayed. Uh, for the Syrian civil war and the terrible stuff that we see coming out of Aleppo on a daily basis. And it just seems hopeless. If you ever sat down and tried to understand exactly how we got here and what's gone wrong and who the players are, it feels so confusing and it feels so hopeless. And so you see it in the physical violence of the world. We see it in the violence that we experience in our own society, right? The, the verbal violence that marks our public life and our public discourse, right? The names that we call one another, the divisions that keep us apart. We see our, our, our absolute failure to live at peace. And maybe more than anywhere else we experience in our inner life, right? We long for peace. We long to know tranquility. We long to live at peace with ourselves and with our family and with our neighbors. And yet we're aware that we're just a mess, that we're a sea of anxieties and lusts and anger and addiction, right? There's, we look out, there's a, there's a world that's not at peace, and then we look in and we see that, oh, man, we're... We're not, we're not at peace. We're not a part of the solution where our own souls bear the marks of our lack of peace. And so, when we come to Micah 5, we come to this incredible promise, looking ahead to what the Messiah would be. In verse 5, the first part, he says, and he shall be their peace. That he, the Messiah, will be peace. 
I love this. It's not that he's going to bring peace. It's not that he's going to act peacefully. It's not even that he's going to usher in peace. But that he, in his person, is peace. That Christ, when he comes, will live so much at peace within himself, so much at peace with God the Father, so much at peace with those around him, that you could say that he is peace, and to be joined with him is to know peace. It's to be at peace with God and with ourselves and with our neighbors. That Christ comes as one who offers peace. Peace to us and peace to our world. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, in Micah 5. You know, uh, if we're going to understand how to have peace through Christ, I think first we have to understand the way that peace eludes us, the way that peace uh, always slips out of our grasp, exactly what it is in our inner life, what it is in our hearts that keeps us from living at peace. And Micah starts there in verse 5.1. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, He's speaking to Jerusalem here. He says, "O, O daughter, O city of troops. Drum up your troops, drum up your army, because a siege is laid against us. We, uh, we know that Micah, during this time, was speaking to the people of Jerusalem during a time when the nation was under siege by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Great name, Sennacherib. Uh, and is, is the, the Assyrian army has encircled the city, and the people of Jerusalem are almost without hope. They're literally surrounded by their troubles. They look, or look around them in every direction, and they're at threat. They see this massive army, this massive amount of wealth that's all, all aligned to keep them from, from thriving, to keep them from having resources and food. It was a dreadful time to live in Israel. And so even though uh, they were literally encircled by problems, if they looked around, they would have plenty to stress about. Micah's message is the same that it's been from Micah chapter 1 which is that their main problem and all of our main problems are not the things that we see when we look around us. It's not the the circumstances of our lives, the circumstances of our economy or our politics, the circumstances of our cities or our jobs or our families. It's not the stuff that we look around and see that makes us stressful, that makes us anxious. Those aren't the biggest problems. In fact, those things just serve to, to bring to our awareness the problems of heart. Uh, that we suffer. And here's what Micah says. uh, A siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. He's saying this is, he's talking about the king of Israel. The king sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. He says that this army comes and they strike the king like a a staff to his cheek that that he's struck. Now this for Israel uh, is the last chapter in what's been a really, really long and sad story of them desiring a king for themselves. Right? The, the, um, the early stories of Israel as a people show that God intended to lead his people by raising up for them a leader when the need arose. When they'd have a need, he would bring a judge who would come and be equipped for the season to lead them. He would bring prophets to speak his truth. He would bring judges to work out justice. And the people were to trust God to raise up leaders when they needed them. But they weren't to have a king. God himself was to be their king. He was to be the one they looked to to provide for them and to keep them safe and to keep them secure. Unlike the peoples of the the nations around them who trusted in their army, who trusted in strong rulers, they were to trust in God. And yet one of the constant refrains that comes up in Judges and in 1 Samuel 
is that the people of Israel desired a king, and it's always the same word, they desired a king like the nations. They looked around themselves. They looked at the, uh, the Assyrians. They looked at the Babylonians. They looked at the Egyptians. They looked at these powerful countries. And they said, you know what? If we had a king like them, if we had a strong ruler, if we had a figurehead, someone who could raise up an army and someone who could build a palace and someone who could keep us safe, if we could be just like the other nations, then we'd be safe. Then we'd be secure. Then we'd be happy. And God, through his prophets over and over again, says, no, let me tell you what it's going to be like when you have a king. When you have a king like all the other nations, you're going to find yourself having problems like all the other nations. They're going to draft your sons into war. They're going to take your daughters to be their wives and to be the wives of their generals and nobility. They're going to take the best of the land for themselves. When you have a king, you might have some of the the strengths of the other nations, but you're also going to have some of their dysfunction. And so when when we come to our, our scene here with the army of Assyria around them and slapping the king of Israel in their face, it's a sign to the people that this long project of building up a secure nation apart from God, building a security apart from trust in God, has finally left them absolutely empty and bankrupt. That this king that they thought would keep them safe couldn't. And they are ultimately uh, vulnerable before these nations. You know, this presses the question for us. Where do we turn for security? Where do you turn to believe that if I have this, if I have this one thing, for Israel it was a king and an army, Maybe for you it's not that. Maybe if, it's, if I could have this job that I think that I need, right? Or if I could have the spouse that I think that I need. If I could have the kind of success that I think that I'm due. If my, if my life could be filled with friends and popularity. If I could have these things, then I'd know that I'd be secure, that I'd be safe, that I'd be at ease. If I, could get my, if I can get my retirement account up big enough, I'll know that I'm secure and that I'm at rest. You know, the the scriptures tell us, the gospel tells us that our our anxieties in life, our lack of peace, always comes from trusting in something that isn't trustworthy to ultimately give us peace, right? Every one of us is ultimately trying to either trust God for our salvation, for our security, or we're trusting ourselves. We're trusting the stuff that we believe we can get for ourselves. And if you want to know peace, if you want to really know inner peace, You have to, unfortunately, go through what Israel went through. That king has to get slapped in his face. Uh, You know, and oftentimes for many of us, it's painful. It requires losing something that we didn't think we could afford to lose, losing the job that you didn't think you could do without, suffering a heartbreak in the relationship that you didn't think you could endure, seeing seeing your bank account dwindle. It takes that, that, that king, that false king, that false trust, getting smacked around a little bit before most of us start to realize that, it, that he's just not, he's not strong enough. He's not powerful enough ultimately to deliver the hopes that we've put on him. And it's then that we can stop and turn and say we need a peace beyond ourselves. We need a peace beyond what we can achieve, a peace beyond what we can manage to wrangle for our own hearts. And your life will be restless uh, until you find it. You know, every year uh, towards this time, we get to December, you start looking back. A lot of websites will do it. TV shows will do it. Look at the celebrities that we lost over the last year. Uh, one of those celebrities that we lost uh, was Merle Haggard. Uh, some, of you, some of you will love Merle Haggard. He was uh, one of the great uh, old-school country music singers. Uh, Haggard had countless number one singles. 
He uh, won countless Grammys. He was at the top of his game. But he also spent a stretch in prison. Uh, He had five marriages over the course of his life, most of which ended in divorce. And here's what Merle Haggard said. He said, there is a restlessness in my soul that I've never conquered, not with my motion or my marriages or meaning. It's still there to to a degree, and it will be until the day that I die. When you look uh, to success, when you look to achievement, when you look even to marriage, to to quell the restlessness of your heart, uh, it's just, it's always going to be there. None of those things are finally going to satisfy. That's why it's such good news in verse 5, when Micah announces that he, the Messiah, will be their peace, that God intends to bring a peace into your life that you could never achieve on your own. God delights to see us stop working to achieve for ourselves a peace and to receive this peace that he, from Micah's standpoint, is preparing to send in the person of his Messiah. How does Jesus bring us peace? Well, he comes as a king. That's what's ultimately behind a lot of the symbols that Micah brings here. It's one of the Christmas passages that we read often in Christmas Eve services and such. Because it starts in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem, the city of David, uh, the city where David and his family, uh, Israel's greatest king, was born. Ephrathah just refers to the region around it. That out of you, Bethlehem, out of you, this small, out-of-the-way city, God is going to raise up a king. God is going to bring a king that's like David, like that first great king, only bigger and better and more gracious and more holy that God is going to bring a greater king than any king that the world's ever seen, and that he's going to bring him out of a place of of humility, a little tiny out-of-the-way town. I love what he says in verse 2. Oh, you Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is God speaking, saying, I'm going to bring up a king out of Bethlehem, Not for you, right? Although certainly he would bring blessing for all people. It's not for you, it's for me. God says, I'm going to bring a king for me. I'm going to bring a redeemer for me. What's going on there? The the reason Jesus comes, the reason the Messiah is promised, it takes its root out of the desire of God to gather people back to himself. Right, that it comes not not principally or even first and foremost to bring peace on earth, although that, that will come, but it comes out of God's desire, God's desire to make peace between him and this people, this people who from the Garden of Eden on have spent our lives not making peace with God, but making an enemy out of God, who spent our whole lives running away from him and trying to build meaning apart from him. That God says, out of my desire for them, out of my desire to bring them back and gather them back to myself, I'm going to raise up a redeemer for me because it's my broken heart and my longing heart that longs to bring them back to me. How amazing is it when you look at the pages of the Old Testament, these promises that God gives that one day he will come near to people, that one day he's not just going to stand off at a distance and speak from heaven, but he's going to come near to his people one day. How amazing is it, after all of our sin and all of our rebellion and all of our stubbornness, that when he does, he doesn't come like 
like I probably would if I was an offended deity, with fire and lightning and chariots and an army behind me. He comes as a baby, born in an out-of-the-way borrowed cave in Bethlehem. He comes in humility as a sign of peace and of gentleness. And that same king, he didn't just grow up out of that cave in Bethlehem and grow up to be powerful and then get his army. No, certainly he grew in power. Jesus showed this incredible power, raising the dead, healing the sick, calming the storm. But even as he grew in wisdom and in righteousness and in power, he stayed humble, right? He lived his entire life in relative obscurity, right? He didn't go from that cave in Bethlehem on to greater and greater power. In fact, he was, he was born in a borrowed cave, and when he was died, he was buried in a borrowed cave. He lived most of his life out of the public eye as far as the Roman Empire would have seen it. And yet, from the perspective of heaven, this is the promised king. This is the king who is to come and be our peace and make peace between God and humanity. You know, it's, it's amazing that even when, um, even when things are relatively good around us, even when we can look at our lives and think there are relative peace in our neighborhoods or our family, the, 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 the scriptural diagnosis uh, of our lives is that fundamentally there's a broken peace at the heart of our world, that the main place where peace is broken for us is between us and God, and that Jesus comes to make that peace. He comes in his death and in his resurrection to defeat the enemies that keep us separated from God, sin and death. And he comes to secure us to God. You will never, ever, ever rest. You'll never know peace until you know on that, that fund, most fundamental relationship, that relationship between you and your creator, that you can face him without fear, that you can face him without any wrongdoing, without any enmity between you and him. That until there's peace in that most important relationship, you'll never have peace within or peace uh, with those around you. Look at what uh, Micah says in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You shall dwell secure. You know, what leads, uh, a shepherd is one of the main Old Testament metaphors for a king. What enables a sheep under a shepherd's rule to dwell secure? Well, it's knowing that they have a shepherd who's wiser than they are. It's knowing that they have a shepherd who's more powerful than they are. A shepherd whose eyes are ever on the horizon uh, looking out for predators, any threat that might come to them. It's knowing that they have a shepherd who's strong enough to protect them. It's knowing that you have a king who's strong enough to do battle and to defeat the enemies that we feel hopeless against. Those things that we feel just like we have no power against in our lives. The deepest of our addictions. The strongest of our despairs and our doubts. The most restless longings of our heart. The sin that we know that we commit in our lives and we feel powerless against. The mortality and death that hangs over us. It's knowing that we have a king who can do battle with those enemies on our behalf and defeat them that allows us to finally dwell secure. You know, Jesus uh, made much of this metaphor of shepherd, that the king would be a shepherd. 
right? In John chapter 10 is the, the great passage where Jesus says to his followers that I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, that I'm the shepherd who allows you to dwell secure. And then he finally says uh, in verse 28 of John 10, that my sheep know my voice and no one shall snatch them from my hand. No one shall snatch them from my hand. The only way that you'll know peace in this life is if you rest in knowing that you are in the hands of one, that no one, nothing can break his grip or take you out of his hand. That your life in this world and your life in the world to come can never be stripped uh, from his hand. There's nothing outside of you, no amount of suffering that this world can bring can take you from his hands, and nothing inside of you, none of your own sin, none of your own weakness, can ultimately break his grip on you. You know, listen, this world, uh, the suffering of this world, there is nothing, there is nothing that this world can't ultimately rip out of your hands, right? You're... This world will one day rip your health from you. It will slowly, over the course of your life, rip your beauty and your strength from you. Right? You think that this world can't rip your wealth from you. And then what? You know, the, the stock market crashes. And you feel that thing that you didn't think could be taken from you, taken. You think that this world can't rip your, your most core relationships from you, your children and your family. And yet there is nothing in this world, that the suffering of this world can't ultimately rip out of your hands. Your grip is not strong enough to hold on to those things, right? Mortality is batting a thousand against humanity over the course of history, right? One day, your grip will loosen, and you will release those things, maybe against your will, that you didn't think you could ever live without. And if you're relying on your grip on the things that you think you can't let go of to give you your security, to give you your peace, ultimately you will come up empty. But nothing, nothing, not death itself, can strip you from the hands of Jesus. The, not even the nails that went through those hands could get him to relinquish his grip on his people. He, he held you through the cross, he held you through the grave, he held you through resurrection. He will hold you through to the world to come. And that's the only place. That's the reason why Micah, dimly through history, can say he will be peace. He will embody peace. Such that to be in Christ, to by faith reach out and join yourself to him, is to be at peace. A peace with God. A peace that wells up within and gives you an inner peace. And a peace that ultimately you can reach out to the others in your life with. That you can reach out to your neighbors. You can reach out to your city. And be an outpost of a kingdom of peace in a world of strife, in a world at war. That's what Micah does uh, there at the end um, in verse 6. Actually, it's in the end of verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces... Then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. It goes on to say, They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian 
Listen, this is a, a weird ending for this otherwise really peaceful passage. But what, what Micah is saying is that there's going to be this king who brings peace to the world. There's going to be this king that achieves a peace that no human king could achieve. But then there's going to be human beings underneath him. That's what he's saying. He's like, we're going to raise up seven shepherds, right? He's the great shepherd. He's the main shepherd. But then under him, there's going to be this army of shepherds. There's going to be seven, seven shepherds and eight rulers. This is him saying that there's going to be a shepherd who, who ultimately brings peace to the world. But under him, he's going to have an army, a peaceful army, who goes out and doesn't bring their own victory. Right, It says that he's going to be our deliverer, but we are going to press his victory into every corner of this earth. Right, the way, That's the way Micah saw it looking ahead to it. The way Paul saw it looking back on it was that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That we've been called as ambassadors of Jesus to in the midst of a world at enmity, in a world full of prejudice, in a world that holds grudges against one another to generations, in a world that doesn't know how to live at peace, that the church will be little outposts of peace in a world at war. That in a divided city will be a people of reconciliation. In the midst of a world where people uh, treat one another terribly, we're going to be a people who reach out in love, not because we're so kind and loving, but because we're the people who know peace, who know the God who is willing to go to the cross to become our peace on our behalf. Let's pray that Jesus would help, help us to begin to bear his image as our peacemaking king. Lord Jesus, we confess um, that we far too often know turmoil in our lives. Our hearts are tumultuous. Lord, we're angry. Uh, we desire things that are beyond our grasp. We seek fulfillment uh, in, the, in the hollow promises of this life. And as a result, Lord, our, our hearts are not at ease. Lord, we pray, uh, Lord Jesus, that as we place our faith in you, as we rest our hearts in you, that your peace would increasingly come to mark our lives. Lord, that we would live at peace with God, knowing that we have nothing to fear, from ultimately the only one in the universe that there is to fear, that we are at peace with our Father, that through that we would be at peace uh, within our own lives, that we would be a people who are marked uh, by an inner peace, knowing that we are your beloved, knowing that we rest secure in you. And Lord, I pray that increasingly you would help us to be people of peace. Lord, whether it's in our families or in our friendships, or in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our world. Every place where we know discord, where we know strife, where we know unforgiveness. Lord, that you would help us to be ambassadors of your reconciling grace, people of peace. Help us in this, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.